Hi, this is Sake Brahman from the OrthoClips podcast series. And today I am with Dr. Asif Ilyas, MD, Program Director of Hand Surgery at the Rothman Institute and Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Jefferson in Philadelphia. He's the president of the Rothman Orthopedic Institute Opioid Foundation and the immediate past president of the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society. And today we're gonna to be talking about humeral fractures in the radial nerve. Explore them. Thanks, Asif, for being with me. Thanks, Asif. It's a pleasure. Great. So let's get into it. You know, I like to ask um, my guests first, uh, you know, what got you interested in investigating this topic and uh, why are you so passionate about it? Yeah, thanks, Saka. You know, it's an, I find it to be an interesting topic. It's a, it's a topic that kind of um, <clears throat> melds my two areas of practice focus. Uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and a hand surgeon, and my practice basically is hand and upper extremity surgery with a high, heavy dose of nerve surgery. And then the other part of my practice is, is orthotrauma surgery. And this, is an, uh, this injury, humerus fractures and radial nerve palsies, is an area where you know, I kind of sit right in the middle of uh, this problem uh, in that both hand surgeons and trauma surgeons are involved in managing this injury. And I've always found it to be uh, a bit paradoxical how uh, orthopedic surgeons look at this injury. And what I mean by that is, is that most orthopedic surgeons, particularly fracture surgeons, trauma surgeons, uh, they like to fix fractures. And, uh, you know, uh, we were very aggressive with it, be it an ankle fracture, be it a dysarrhagia fracture. We're very aggressive in fixing them. And, and we help our patients in that way. We, you know, we get the fractures aligned, we mobilize them quicker, we control the pain, we return them to function uh, sooner. But for whatever reason, I always thought it was odd that when it comes to a radial nerve palsy, uh, the bias is, is to, you know, not go to the operating room. Well, let's wait. Let's wait while all along uh, the main issue is the nerve, and we'll talk more about this, but nerve palsies are, are significant injuries and have significant morbidity and are time sensitive. So I always thought it was a little bit of a weird phenomenon. So that got me into uh, looking at this problem more critically from an uh, from a, uh, academic perspective, looking at the data that's out there uh, and critiquing it and, then, and seeing um, if we can draw some more updated conclusions on it, and I'll share some of my research with, this, with you on this topic uh, when, as you progress with the, with the podcast. Okay, great. I think that's really interesting. So what does the data tell us? Maybe we'll just talk some basics. What does the you know, data tell us so far about incidents, uh, recovery, and how we, how we as surgeons can influence uh, outcomes when patients have a humeral fracture and a radial nerve palsy? Yeah, so let's talk about that. So first of all, just as a way of background, uh, humerus fractures are um, uh, um, not super common fractures, but in the upper extremity, a fracture we see you know, reasonably regularly. And um, it's a fracture that when it involves uh, classically the distal third or even the, the, the mid-shaft region, uh, the radial nerve, which is tethered ar around the humerus, can uh, become injured along with the fracture. And that results in a palsy. And a palsy manifests uh, on exam with the inability to extend the fingers, the thumb, and the wrist. And the incidence of it, based on what you read and the, the several reviews that are out there, range anywhere between nine and 12% in terms of a radial nerve palsy occurring along with 
uh, a humorous crush. So we know that kind of out of the gate. So it's pretty pretty high. I mean, almost one, essentially one in 10 will have a rail nerve palsy. Um, and then the question always is, is how do you manage that palsy? And um, the current, uh, the current recommendations the, is the following, is that if it's a closed humerus fracture with a radial nerve palsy, uh, you treat it non-operatively based on the fracture characteristics. So the fracture characteristics are, are amenable to non-operative management. You treat both the fracture and the nerve non-operatively and you observe for nerve recovery. And we'll talk about some of those statistics. If it's an, an open fracture of the humerus with the nerve palsy, in those cases, you go in surgically both to debride and repair the fracture and also assess the nerve. And, uh, and two or three small series have shown that the incidence of a real nerve palsy in the setting of an open fracture is, a, is, is 50 plus percent, so pretty high. So no controversy there where if it's open and there's a nerve palsy, you go in. And also the third category is what we call common fractures of the humerus. So let's say like a gunshot injury or an injury with significant um, soft tissue trauma or penetrating, what have you. In that situation, similarly, if there's a humerus fracture with a nerve palsy, you, you manage both the fracture and the nerve surgically. So those two aren't the, the controversy. The real controversy lies in a, a closed humerus fracture with a nerve palsy. If the fracture is amenable to non-operative management, the current paradigm is to treat that uh, non-surgically. And if you want, I can, I can share with you kind of what we know about this in terms of its percentages and, and kind of what some of the issues are around that. Sure. If you want to just very briefly uh, maybe share those details. Yeah. So, I mean, so basically, um, uh, well, let me, let me take it back a little bit. So one of the, one of the um, big myths around humerus fractures and real nerve palsies is that uh, they all, essentially all recover. Um, and that's really driven, uh, driven our current bias. And if you look at the data, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into deep detail of the data because that's boring. Um, the early data pre 1960s showed a high radial nerve pulse, a uh, radial nerve injury rate with humerus fractures. And at the time, the recommendation was surgical. And then post 60s and particularly 70s, 80s and early 90s, the data show that, you know, radial nerve palsies were typically uh, 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 would recover on their own. So there's really no reason to go in there surgically. But when you take a deeper dive in a lot of that data, um, there's, some, there's some issues with that data that may be driving uh, us in, a, in an overly conservative way to the detriment uh, of the, of the uh, nerve recovery. And just to kind of talk about nerve, and we'll talk about kind of what we think now and, and what we know now, I think it's worth, if, if we can, just talk about, you know, what, what is the issue with radial nerve palsies and why there's a time sensitivity to it, uh, if you will. Um, so if you look at uh, radial nerve palsies, the issue with it is that it's, it's, very, it's very debilitating. You, if you have your radial nerve out, you can't extend your fingers, thumb, and wrist. So you really, you can't do much with that hand, right? So that's the, the first really big problem that we have with it. And um, the recovery time, even if it's going to recover spontaneously, is six to 12 weeks. And that's a pretty long period of time to have that dysfunction and disability with the hand. And oftentimes, even when it does recover, it doesn't recover fully. So one of the reasons why a lot of us have begun advocating for early exploration, and I'm going to give you some statistics later to kind of advocate for that, is for a few reasons. One is to, to 
uh, explore early, I, which means basically a patient presents with a humerus fracture and a real nerve palsy. You treat the fracture surgically with internal fixation, and then you also explore the nerve and address the nerve. And the reasons for that are the following. Uh, there are a, um, a reasonably high incidence of lacerated nerves, either complete laceration or partially lacerated, and those nerves are, that's a surgical lesion that requires our intervention to improve and restore nerve function. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that oftentimes a, a radial nerve can be incarcerated within the fracture fragments. If it's a long spiral fracture or a butterfly fracture, the nerve can actually become incarcerated. So as the bone is healing and the, and the callus is forming, it can become uh, incarcerated and trapped uh, within the fracture itself. Um, uh, next is if you fix a fracture, you then are affording type one bony healing, which has less callus formation and then has less chance of, of, of affecting the nerve versus if you treat them non-surgically, there's more type two bony healing, which can cause a lot of pressure uh, around the nerve and again, can incarcerate the nerve as well. Also, when you can, when you operate on the patient early, irrespective of the nerve status, you can mobilize that patient faster, which we know is better for nerve recovery in general. If you can mobilize the muscles, the tendons, the joints, and get that limb uh, supple and limber, they can recover better overall. And lastly, probably most importantly, uh, those of us who do nerve surgery will, uh, will remind everyone that nerve outcomes is directly correlated to a number of things, but one of them is time. So the sooner you can get to a nerve injury and then uh, intervene in a manner to restore its continuity, uh, the greater the chances of that nerve actually recovering. As you go further out and wait longer to address the nerve, the less, uh, less potential for nerve recovery and the outcomes deteriorate. So for those reasons, you know, defining the extent of nerve injury, if it's, if it's injured, you can, if you can repair right then and there. If it's incarcerated, you can liberate it. You can fix the fracture so there's more type 1 healing. You can then also, when the fracture is fixed, you can mobilize the patient quicker. And again, it's, and lastly, uh, time, it's time sensitive and it's easier to do these surgeries early rather than doing them late. So that's a little bit about kind of uh, the problem with nerve palsies and why there is a time sensitivity around them and why the myth that they all define is not really an accurate myth. So maybe I'll just ask you, what is your approach to managing these patients? And maybe for the sake of time, we won't go through every scenario but maybe you can give a couple of the common ones, or I'll just throw out a very um, maybe uh, controversial scenario. I mean, you have um, a young to middle-aged person, isolated mid-shaft, humerus fracture, no other injuries, uh, radial nerve palsy on presentation. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe you can start with yeah. that one, and a couple of wrinkles, yeah. and what's your approach to handling these? You know, yeah, I haven't I heard it. anything about like, you know, electrodiagnostic testing either. What do you want to tell people about that? And how does that figure into your approach? Well, let me do it. That's, that's no problem. Let me give it to you. Let me give you a two-part answer, Saka. Let me first kind of tell you, I want to give you just a high level of what we recently found, which will, I think, you know, support uh, my recommendations and my, uh, how I approach these injuries. So uh, we recently published paper, Saka, in uh, the Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, where we did a a systematic review of all published cases. And we, it was a pretty big review. It went from 1964 to 2017, and it, we included over 7,000 fractures. And in that, in that series, we found about an incidence of 12.3% of radial nerve palsy, which was very consistent with everybody 
um, uh, the prior uh, reports on this. And what we found basically is when we divided the patients into three categories, those that were treated non-operatively only, those who were treated operatively early, and those who were treated operatively late, so after three to eight weeks or three to 12 weeks when the surgeons decided to intervene surgically, what was their recovery? So the non-operative group, the spontaneous nerve recovery group, the spontaneous recovery rate was 77%. So about three quarters of the time, the nerve came back on its own, but 23% of the time, it did not. And those that were operated on early, 90% came back. Um, so again, 77% versus 90%. And then those who had a late surgery, so three to eight weeks later, they only had a 68% recovery rate. So this kind of supports that early intervention does make a difference. And it's interesting, if you dig deeper, if you look at all the cases where there was a nerve injury based on operative findings, we found that 36% of cases actually had a, a surgical nerve lesion uh, in that 10% uh, were incarcerated between, between fracture fragments and 26% were either partially or completely lacerated. So these 36% of cases will not get better on their own, or at least not completely better on their own without us intervening surgically. So that's kind of what brought us, uh, you know, gives us the data to kind of push for looking at these injuries from a more, um, uh, from a more surgical perspective than a non-surgical perspective. To answer your question about how I approach these patients, so the example you gave is a classic one, I think, you know, a, uh, a middle-aged person comes in, dominant limb, mid-shaft, humerus fracture, and the nerve is out. What do you do? Well, the first thing is you educate the patient on, like, listen, so what we know is that these occur about 12% of the time. Uh, we know that about three-quarters of the time it, it comes back on its own, but the reason it often does not come back on its own is because there could be a problem with the nerve. It could be trapped. It could be uh, partially cut or completely cut. Um, so my general bias with these is so that we're not uh, keeping the patient immobilized and observing and anxious and unsure for six to 12 weeks while we observe it, is to treat this as a surgical fracture. What that means for me is that I will do internal fixation on that fracture. I will not do a rotting, although I don't typically do a lot of rotting occasionally. I will for certain situations. Uh, I recommend plate and screw fixations for two reasons. One is uh, you're in the surgical bed where the nerve is going to be, so you can you know, both fix the fracture and, um, and address the nerve. It's also just safer for the nerve than to put a, put a rod down first because you don't know where the nerve is. So fix the fracture and then explore the nerve and, and take a look at it. Uh, and it may be maybe completely in continuity, maybe partially lacerated, maybe completely lacerated, or maybe incarcerated. And all those can be addressed at the same time. Last point I'll say is I didn't mention electrodiagnostic studies because I really don't get them uh, if I'm going to indicate the patient uh, operatively right away. If a patient is being treated non-operatively by uh, someone else and they want to evaluate it, well then typically, and they want to follow it non-operatively, uh, typically I recommend uh, waiting the first three to four weeks before, before getting your first baseline nerve study. And then typically you can get them every 12 weeks or so thereafter and they can show patterns of re-innervation that you can kind of observe uh, nerve recovery electrodiagnostically if you choose to go down that route. But again, based on our, our data, I would really tell people to reconsider their strategy and consider treating a um, humerus fracture with a radial nerve palsy as a surgical fracture where both the fracture is addressed and the nerve is explored. And that uh, paper um, where you reported this is in the uh, March 15th 2020 issue of the uh, Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. For those of you who want to 
check it out. Um, we're just about out of time. Maybe I'll just ask uh, any thoughts about uh, what the future holds. Uh, any last comments on this topic? Yeah, uh, two comments, Saka. Thanks for asking that, and thanks for having me again. Um, you know, so firstly, is I think we really need to change the way we look at these injuries. I think, firstly, the challenge has been trying to change people's uh, perspective on these injuries is still viewed in a very kind of, what I would say, an old-fashioned way. Uh, and today's in today's day and age, in terms of what we know about outcomes and what we know about um, and what we can do surgically, I think it, it behooves us to, to maximize our patient's outcomes by both fixing the fracture and making sure the nerve is okay. And if it's not okay, addressing it early because of the time sensitivity of nerve injuries. So I think that's the first challenge is, is changing uh, that mindset uh, around this injury pattern and combination. And the second uh, challenge is just in general in terms of nerve surgery. You know, in orthopedics, I think we've done a really good job with a lot of, you know, bony work, joint work. I think where there's still a lot of room um, uh, and a lot of potential to grow as a field is nerve surgery. That's one area where um, we're doing more and more and studying more and more techniques, but there's still a lot of room to improve uh, our outcomes uh, because nerves are, are fickle. And they're difficult to assess, they're difficult to fix, and they're difficult to rehab. And thus, overall, uh, it remains a very big challenge in terms of improving our outcomes. But one thing like we, I've been harping on a few times in, this, in our chat here is that they are time sensitive. The sooner that you can characterize it and repair it, the better they do. But there's still a lot of room for improvement when it comes to nerve injuries. All right, great stuff. Um, thank you. You know, I've been uh, talking with uh, Dr. Asif Ilyas about humeral fractures in the radial nerve. He urges you to explore them, <laughs> if I'm hearing this correctly. And that's the title of our podcast. And uh, that's about it for time. Uh, Asif, thank you very much. Saka, it was a pleasure. It was great chatting with you.